Bibles out and turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. I'd like to read uh, verses 6 through 18. And um, I'll admit before reading it that these are uh, the kind of verses that my mind tends to go, blah, 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 I keep reading. You know, they all kind of mesh together. But if your mind is attuned to um, the details, I think it, it's going to be very um, interesting to you. I'd like to pray first. Lord, I ask that you would work in us by the reading of your word, by the preaching of it, the explaining of it. May you be exalted in our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started this uh, Leviticus 18 sermonizing last time I preached, and we talked about the nations, some of the godless uh, activities that they were performing and that were permissible to Egypt and Canaan and how God was vomiting, going to vomit Canaan out of the land. The land itself would vomit Canaan out and that the Hebrews would come in and take over. It was the promised land. And so this now is getting into some of the details of what these people were about and what they shouldn't be about, and what the Hebrews should be doing in terms of following their God. So I want to read starting in verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. Mind you, okay, uh, just going to interject this. As we're reading some of this, some of these laws were important and distinguishing because you had more than one wife in some of these families. And so he's trying to deal with some of those odd situations or there have been a divorce and a remarriage or a death and a second wife. And all of these laws are written as if they're written to the male head of a household. So that's the, the point of view that, that this is being read in. Number, verse 9, I'll start there. I'm not sure if I left there. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. 
You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. (laughs) You may be seated. When we read over and over again that phrase, uncover the nakedness, you ought to think first of proper, of proper sexual intimacy, a physical closeness God made for a man and his wife. That's where we start. It's the physical expression of the two become one. Many translations simply say, you know, have sexual relations or sexual intercourse. In the ESV here, it's uncover the nakedness, which is closer to the uh, Hebrew. And it is, um, what's the word for it? Um, It's a nicer way of saying it. This intimate union is expressed on the marriage bed, where a man has a right to his wife's body, and she has a right to his. You would be right to say it is a privilege of ownership, this uncovering of the nakedness. In fact, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we are told, let let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It is a great sin for another man to trespass the marriage bed and take what doesn't belong to him. It's a great sin for a wife to give to another what she vowed to her husband. And the shoe fits tightly on the other foot as well. A sexually unfaithful husband is a disgrace and treacherous husband to pursue the bed of another woman. Now, Hebrews 13, 4 and 5 was the Bible text I picked for our wedding. It wasn't the first Corinthians love chapter. 
Uh-uh. It wasn't Genesis where we're told a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. No, no, not for me. It was let the marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then the next verse says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was the passage adorning our big day. I think the pastor who was officiating asked me if I was sure I wanted that text to be used. Like, uh, is this really the one you want for your wedding? Almost like, is Tracy okay with that? Tracy, all beautifully adorned in white, our friends and family attending the ceremony, we're saying our forever vows, and the wonderful words are declared, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let, marriage, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Isn't that sweet? I suppose I'm more practical than romantic, and I'm glad Tracy was willing to have it. I don't know that she thought about it too much. Maybe she just kind of bit her tongue. I would still choose the text. But it's because the, the marriage bed is of great importance. It is important to marital fidelity. It's important to building a home. It's important to protecting the marriage. God gave it to support the work of the church and advance Christ's objectives. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again. So so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Those are heavy words. Great words, you know, depending on what you're, where you're coming from, right? But those are heavy words, especially in this culture that everyone screams about my body as my own. I do with it what I want. Well, not according to the Apostle Paul, if you're married. It's not your own to do with whatever you want. On the other hand, Paul is saying that celibacy as a single man is a great blessing. But he understands that not everyone is made to be single. Some are supposed to be married. Yet this should encourage the unmarried. This should encourage the unmarried. If you can accept singleness with its accompanying chastity, then the 
then embrace the beauty of it. Singleness is, is beautiful in, in Paul's eyes and, and, and many's as long as you embrace and uh, the accompanying chastity. For Paul continues writing, even after the verse I just finished, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The problem often is that we don't understand how one could be content with their singleness and find it beautiful. Because we married people don't have the gift for it. And the alternate is, is also true. The single person hasn't been gifted with marital, marital bliss. So they get annoyed when married people keep shoving it on them like they should have it. And they're not complete without it. There's a tension. Can you imagine the people feeling sympathy for the apostle? Oh, it's, it's too bad. He hasn't found the right girl yet. I imagine Paul would scoff. Are you kidding me? It's too bad you got married. He probably wouldn't go that far, but you get my point. It's a tough thing for church people to see the other side. I admit it. If you don't have the gift, it's like you don't have the eyes to see. We need to work at appreciating the other. The other. I need to work at that. Now, in today's text, Leviticus 18, God gave us his law in what has been considered over history the premier biblical chapter by which you clarify what defilement of the marriage bed looks like. This is the chapter in history that have changed and formed nations' laws. Rabbi Hertz writes, these laws, these laws proved the ramparts for a new human ideal, that of the holiness of home an ideal that became one of the distinguishing features of the Jewish people throughout the ages. The holiness of home. I like that. God gave us the uncovering for the man and woman in covenant. It's good that mom and dad, God made it, to draw together the two into one flesh. It is the institution of marriage for which he established sex. And only in marriage should it happen. Indeed, the, the uncovering is how families are made. The prophet Malachi spoke instructively 
he records what he said to the Jews in chapter 2, Malachi 2, verses 14 and 15. Quote, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union, capital S? Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. End quote. God gave us this uncovering of nakedness to fill the earth. Congregation, we all come from this, we all come from this intimacy of man and woman. Hopefully, you're here by godly parents. In any case, we need to uphold propriety in sex and teach it to others. Sex is for married people, period. Male and female, he made them. And there is much more to say of the mystery of oneness, how it is accomplished that two individually complete people are are melded together by God and by oath to make one new entity. This is the affinity of marriage. Affinity of marriage. And the oneness occurs spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and physically if it's proper to compartmentalize a person in such a way. I'm not sure that it is. I call the oneness a mystery using the Apostle Paul's words where he wrote in Ephesians 5, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and Mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. For the married, the two flesh have become one flesh. How does God tell us to guard the marriage bed? First, he makes illegal, he makes illegal forever. Listen, this is forever. He makes illegal forever sexual intimacy with another member of your family. Verse 6 is what Baruch Levine calls the terms of reference. For 
proper understanding of what is to follow. And in verse 6 it says there, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. He's setting himself off as opposed to the gods of the other nations. So then we are not to uncover the nakedness of close relatives. Or you might say those who often come within the family quarters. No, no. What this looks like specifically is that there are people close to you, probably those who show up for family events, Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday parties, etc., who are off limits to you forever. It doesn't matter if they become single by death or divorce. They're forever off limits to you because they're relatives now. Some are blood relatives. Others have married into the family in Leviticus 18, 6 through 18, is the law that warns against sexual relations with any of them. It is called incest. Levine makes a great point. He says the law is prohibiting, the law is prohibiting incest indirectly define the limits of what is the immediate family. Okay, what you, what you, who you're not allowed to be with basically tells you what your family consists of. We get to know who is part of the family based upon who is off limits for sex and marriage. Second, these laws against incest are not simply laws against copulation. They are even more. Even more they are in regard to unlawful marriages. What I'm saying is most of this uncovering of the nakedness is, is not referring only or merely to copulation. It's referring to who you can't marry. If you think about it, any sex outside of marriage is illicit. It's illegal. Any sex outside of marriage is illegal. God disapproves of it. So then, why will God provide a list of specific relatives and say you can't with them? That doesn't make much sense. Do you get what I'm saying? If all sexual relationships apart from marriage are condemned, then what do we gain by this short taboo list? Does it matter if it's your uncle's wife or some unrelated co-worker who lives in the next state? Both indulgences are to be condemned. I wrestled hard with that because I kept reading, you shall not uncover the nakedness, you shall not uncover the nakedness of the father, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. And thinking about it just as sex. But that's not the reason for the law. It's part of it. But it's bigger than that. So as I'm starting to read the commentators, 
they, they helped open my eyes and see it went deeper than just the copulation. Resh Duni writes, the first thing to note with respect to these laws is that they govern marriage. We are given a list of forbidden marriages. All non-marital sex is illicit. Not all unions of male and female are permitted, i.e., not all men nor all women are eligible marriage partners. I couldn't agree with him at first. I thought, I don't know, rush. But that line stuck. All non-marital sex is illicit. So it's like, yeah. So, so what's the reason to spell out certain kinsmen? Does it matter? It must be something more than just the copulation. Anyway, then I bought a, a book by Johann David Michaelis called Commentaries on the Laws of Moses. He lived in the 1700s. And he spends chapters making a case for illegal practices and marriages being the cause of these incest laws. And, and he reminded me, okay, that Moses was legislating to keep Israel from doing as the Egyptians and the Canaanites were doing. Hmm. Now you'd think, you'd think that most people under heaven, most nations, would be repulsed by the idea of copulation with a family member. kissing your sister. Not so much, apparently. Michaelis says the history of mankind, the history of mankind proves false the doctrine of our natural abhorrence of such connections. In other words, we're not all against the idea instinctively. Then he goes on, many of the great nations of antiquity, such as the Phoenicians, Egyptians, Persians, Athenians, and Lacedaemonians were wont to marry their nearest relatives. They wanted that. And if it be said that these civilized nations had by an abuse of reason refined away their natural propensity. In other words, they got so smart that they reasoned with themselves that it's okay, even though internally they were against the idea. If people would reason that way, there, he says, there are yet a whole nations of savages in whom the natural propensities must be in the strongest and most unaltered state who are so far from having any forbidden degrees that they make it a duty of a brother to marry his sister. The Spaniards found this the case throughout all America, and the North American Indians, who are still perhaps as much in the state of nature as any people whatever, marry their sisters without feeling the least reluctance. Okay, he's writing this in the 1700s. Pretty ripe things still going on in America. So I'm getting it. 
I, I lean in the direction that Moses was actually writing these laws to deal with illegal marriages, not just copulation. The uncovering of nakedness had to do even more with marrying your divorced aunt or marrying your widowed daughter-in-law, which of course was likely preceded by your own motivation of admiration or lust or seeking or gaining a power in the family or whatever would have caused you to want to do such a thing. But these marriages, they're illicit. They're illegal forever on top of it. doesn't matter if the person died or was divorced. The circumstances changed. You never get to have her. Never. Whereas these things were often permitted and protected by the nations. So Moses cites these specific relatives to make outlaw the incestuous laws and practices of Egypt and Canaan. And so what are they? What are the forbidden degrees? They call them de- forbidden degrees. What are those, those uh, one-off relationships we have? Not one-off, but those levels of relationships we have in the family that are off-limits for marriage. If you begin to read through the list, you'll see that some were bloodline relatives. Verse 7, 9, 10, 12, 13. There were bloodline relatives of the first and second degree. The first degree were were immediate. Your sister, off limits. Your mom, no way. Your daughter, uh uh-uh. While the second degree bloodline included your dad's sister, or your mom's sister, or your son's daughter. These actually somehow shared your blood. As Levine writes, the nuclear family is founded on six flesh relation relatives. Six flesh relation relatives. Mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister. Those are your, that's your nuclear family. Flesh relation relatives. And Levine learned of these six by way of another passage altogether. Leviticus 21, verses 2 and 3, it was written for the priests when they should not go and be amongst the dead body, okay, because it would, it would defile them. He said, speak to the priest. The Lord said this to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his close relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister. Those are the six. So then you cannot uncover the nakedness of any of these, who would certainly reside in very close proximity most of your life as you're growing up, coming and going. But also off limits are that second-degree bloodline, women, Again, this is written to the man. They include a man's aunt or granddaughter or whatever. All are illegal in that second degree bloodline. 
And this brings us to relatives that aren't of blood. They exist too. And perhaps they're the most tempting. These are the ones who married one of your bloodline members that we've already mentioned. They married into the family and became relatives. You know who who they are, right, in your own families. It's my sister's husband, right? Or, Or my aunt's husband, my dad's sister's husband, or wife. Let me just put it that way because of the wife thing. It's uh, my son's wife. They married in. It's affinity. It's an affine relationship. They married into the family and became relatives. They are off limits as well. Forever. Your sister dies, her husband's off limits forever for you anyhow. In all these cases, marriage and divorce, or marriage after divorce or death, is against God's law. It is not an option for the holiness of home. Now, in history, some have played the angles, and that was part of the problem. They've divorced a spouse, or even poisoned a spouse in order to become an independent agent again and open up the marital corridor to another from whom they had affections. Moses' law against incense, uh, incense, incest, closes the corridor completely. You cannot marry any of your close relatives, period, ever. And mind you, The Hebrews, as a people, they were disallowed to marry outside of their own people. They had to marry one from one of the tribes of Jacob. Yet the law given here protects against the threat. It protects against the threat of those in close proximity. It condemns incest. And in it, God refuses to tolerate spousal treachery and mischief. Stop there. I pray. Lord, I pray and I ask that you teach us your ways that we might uh, be able to see how they apply in our daily lives, in our comings and goings, so that we might honor you and live for you more completely. Lord Jesus, it's, as we read, you, you love your church as your bride, and you, you want us to be clean. And you use your word and your spirit to do so. I pray that your spirit would work inside of us. Lord, help us to understand these things better, to, to want to see them applied in our own lives and those who are part of our families. In your name we pray.